the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Welcome back, Siege of New Hampshire fans. This week's episode is an epilogue of a sorts to Book Four. Some related author notes, as it were. What was the impetus to write Book Four? The short answer is another attempt at an ending. Before publishing the books through Amazon, when the stories were only a collection of posts shared on a prepper fiction forum, I figured the siege story ended at the end of Book Three, so I hadn't planned on there being a Book Four. Although, to be honest, I hadn't planned on there being a Book Two or Three either when I finished Book One. Book One started out as just a getting home mental experiment. That was all fine, but when it came to making it an actual story, I realized that it would make better reading if the main character had someone to talk to. Conversation between two characters is more engaging than internal monologue, so I contrived to give Martin a travel companion instead of him going home alone, talking to himself. As you can imagine, such a travel companion opens up a lot of questions. Who are they? Why are they going with him? Since a lot of post-apocalyptic stories that I'd read up to that point featured the rugged and single hero battling bad guys and rescuing the beautiful, and also conveniently single, female, romance naturally ensued. I wanted to change that up a bit. What if the damsel in distress was rescued by a faithfully married hero? Well, then what? What if the rescue actually turned out to be more of a burden for him? That wouldn't be your typical storyline. I think I'd mentioned in the interview with Todd about how, as a writing process, I lay out a story with an outline to map out the key plot features to get me from the start of the story to the ending. I don't, anymore, try to nail down every last detail. I think I started out that way, a little OCD for wanting to figure out every last detail in advance. What happened, though, was a little surprising. I'd be riding along, following the OCD trail of details that I'd laid out, but then the story would veer off into the woods, so to speak. I'd have in my outline something like, and I'm just making this up as an example, that the main character checked out an abandoned house. But as I'm writing, I put myself in the head of that character, and he thinks he's got food and water already, and it's getting dark, he wants to maximize his travel distance for the day. Why would he stop to investigate that house? He wouldn't. So he travels on, and I have to throw away all those details I'd figured out for the abandoned house. After several of those wasted outline branches, I stop fighting it. Instead, I start writing between those outline points and let the story develop. Sometimes, writing about an event or an action suggests a logical next event that my outline didn't specify. Or the characters, as they take on personalities, begin to suggest what they would do. Take, for instance, that part near the end of Book 4 where Susan confronts Paul about his secret involvement with the Coalition. In my outline, I only had that Susan finds the tire prints of a semi in Paul's barn. So she's figured it out. As I got to the actual writing of that part, though, I got to thinking. If someone thought they had discovered a secret, 
wouldn't it be more natural that they try to find some more confirmation of their suspicions, poke around a bit more to be sure, ask a few leading questions? And then, too, if someone really was a member of a secret resistance underground, how would they react to someone probing around for confirmation? From all of that, the scene around the supper table developed. Off of that grew the scene of Susan confronting Paul in the barn with her conjecture about his involvement. I didn't have all that in my outline. It developed as I tried to imagine how a guy in Paul's situation might react as Susan tried to press her hunch. That's all a rather long-winded example to illustrate how a lot of the time when I'm writing, the story takes on a life of its own. And that, to explain that as I was writing Book 2, Siege Fall, I had in my outline of major events, points I wanted to make, etc., etc. That was all fine, but as the story progressed, the suppressed feelings between Martin and Susan were becoming more of a thing than the outline suggested. With Book 3, I felt I needed to do something to resolve the triangle. I mean, things couldn't go on that way the way they were. Martin wanted to remain faithful, and Susan didn't want to be some home-wrecking hussy. So, I decided I had to write Susan out of the story before they got themselves into trouble. I couldn't just kill her off. So, I fashioned a constructive reason for her departure. She was leaving, but in her sacrifice she would be a provider and no longer a dependent. She would still be a positive role in the story, just an offstage role. Tidy, I thought. I solved the triangle. Dust off my hands, put my feet up on the desk. Job's done. Uh, but no. After publishing the first three books, I found out that Susan had developed a fan base. They weren't satisfied with my ending. They wanted to know what happened to her. The synopsis that Malcolm told at the end of book three explained why she didn't return to New Hampshire, but nothing much more beyond that. The last her fans heard, she was running back across the bridge with soldiers chasing her. I could see their point. That didn't sound too settled. So I outlined a fourth book to answer their question of what happened to Susan. With the Malcolm synopsis from book three as a start, I fleshed out the story of Operation Longbow as told from Susan's point of view its success, and its abrupt end. From there, I wanted the book to reassure her fans that she would be okay. They didn't have to worry. Book four would show her transformation from the helpless city girl to a capable survivor who could make it on her own. Her transformation story was a chance to highlight one of my personal beliefs, one that runs through much of the siege story generally is that ordinary people can have what it takes to survive in truly difficult times. You don't have to be an ex-Navy SEAL or a Bear Grylls bushcraft expert. Being resourceful and stubborn goes a long way. Susan's story was an excellent way to showcase that belief. She started out in Book 1 as pretty much clueless and cityfied. I actually might have done too good a job of portraying her cluelessness early on. The Susan of Book One seemed to annoy some readers. One suggested that the story would have been better off if she was eaten by a bear. She started out as sheltered and citified, yes, but when she clocks that carjacker with a shovel, you get a hint that there's something more to her, something stronger, even if she didn't realize it herself. 
I had based the Susan character in Book One on some young co-workers of mine. Back in the day, they were, by and large, totally cityfied urban creatures. They had virtually no clue of how the natural world worked, but then they didn't live there. They lived in the city. Trees and animals and soil were not their native habitat. They knew city knowledge, like where to get obscure artisanal cheeses, which subway lines and bus routes were the best for getting to Red Sox games, and when it was best to steer clear of the theater district, etc. These are all things they needed to know to survive in their city habitat. They weren't ashamed to have no cooking skills, but they took great pride in knowing a wide range of restaurants in their area. I have to admit I was prone to roll my eyes at my urban co-workers, figuring that they probably would get eaten by bears if they had to survive outside of their urban habitat. And yet, I could also see where a lot of their cluelessness about the world beyond the pavement was a sort of learned helplessness. Or you might say, learned uselessness. City dwellers learned to be consumers, not producers. The city provided so much of their basic needs that they'd lost nearly all of their innate DIY instincts. Landlords provided shelter. Restaurants provided food. City utilities provided water, light, and heat. Even though they were young adults, they were living, essentially, in a government-managed childhood, with the city as their parent provider. Yet, they weren't born with a mental map of the most authentic Italian restaurants. They didn't wake up one day knowing which of the two green lines had the fewest stops. They learned all that, and for the most part, they learned it from other urban dwellers. Yes, if they were taken out of their native urban habitat, they would be like fish out of water. But if someone was to teach them skills for their new gridless natural habitat, I bet many of them could adapt. Book four was an opportunity to show Susan's growth, learning skills, and, when truly cornered, having the steel in her soul to fight and survive. She learned cooking from Margaret. She learned shooting from Martin. She learned pine fries from Andy. She learned hunting from Owen and skinning from Byron. She learned some orienteering and bushcraft from Charon, just to name a few. She adapted and learned how to survive in her new habitat. Survival is good, but would she ever make it back to Cheshire? I had it in my outline that she would not succeed in returning to New Hampshire. That would mess up my solution to the triangle. Can't have that. I tried to suggest that she had found a new home in Five Corners, a place to sleep, fitting in, being a contributor, and not just another mouth to feed, etc. I tried to drop little hints that Paul kind of liked Susan. His coming out of his shell, well, a little anyhow, him providing the thin mattress for her to sleep on, making a fire in the middle house wood stove so she'd be warm, even arranging for some black market coffee as a treat. It wasn't romance, but it was a hint of a future for her someplace other than Cheshire. Once again, I thought I was done. I'm really going to have to stop thinking that, you know. So far, I've never been right. Don't ask me for stock picks or what sports teams to bet on. After book four was out, the Susan fans weren't satisfied. They felt I'd left them hanging. Apparently, my subtle hints that she'd found a new home and a new life were too subtle. 
Book four wasn't an ending either, apparently. It led to a book five. I think I've given up on the idea of writing an ending. Susan's fans are still expecting more. Pondering on what that more might be for her story spawned a couple of related but parallel stories yet to be written. While the writing of book six is in progress, I can already see where it isn't going to be an ending, but a next step. One of my listeners, Anne, was joking about there being a book ten. At least, I thought she was joking. Meh, maybe not. Who knows? In a different topic, a fair amount of action in the latter portion of book four takes place in and around Brattleboro, Vermont. While I had visited Brattleboro many, many years back as a tourist, I wasn't at all familiar with it. To make the story more realistic, I traveled to Brattleboro, driving around the area, walking the streets, to get a feel for the place. I shopped at the co-op. I stood at the intersection and looked at that big steel bridge with Mount Wantasticate in the background. I noticed during my traveling around town how the mountain always seemed to loom up over the rooftops. We ate at the restaurant at the end of that bridge, sitting at a window where I could see the bridge spanning the Connecticut River and put myself in Susan's mind, picturing herself running across it. On that trip, I was also doing some people-watching. There were obvious tourist types, and I probably looked like one of them. The locals were an interesting mix of old and new. There were what I called the old Vermonters, the rural sort in flannel shirts and work boots, with a sort of just-leave-me-alone ethos to them. And there were the new Vermonters, clearly transplants from cosmopolitan urban life, leftists, but with more of a hippie-like crunchy granola air about them not the angry activist types who tend to be fiery but mostly peaceful. The Brattleboro leftists seem to have left their urban tumult for some of the old Vermonters' just-leave-me-alone environment. I traveled around the countryside, west of Brattleboro, looking for what might be a plausible new home for Susan. <laughs> Even I was worried about her and trying to find her a nice new home. There was an area that, with some artistic license, could be morphed into a sort of family village. Even though Vermont is hilly and mountainous, there were still farms, small farms, nestled in the narrow valleys and perched on the hillsides. It wasn't hard to picture such a cluster of small farms being able to eke out some self-sufficiency. It seemed like a good place for Susan to resume her rural lifestyle. Book five, which we'll be starting into soon, started out with the goal of hopefully providing some less subtle closure to the triangle. There's more to book five than that, but I don't want to dabble in spoilers, so I probably shouldn't say any more. I'll start posting audio chapters of book five, Critical Spring, after a couple of bonus episodes. Up next week will be the results of my little survey to your questions. Thanks to all of you who took the time to send in questions. There were some commonalities to them. One of those commonalities were curiosities about the writing process and the creation of the seed stories. I touched on some of that in this epilogue. For those process questions, I had an online chat with my friend and fellow prepper, Brian Hawkins. That chat will be another bonus episode. So, until next week, thanks for listening. And thanks for your support via Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon.